0: It has been a highly charged five weeks. As we've looked at the book of Job, it's a quite intense narrative of of a man in the Old Testament. And so even as this week is no exception, a lot of emotion in the room, let's linger in that. Let's not try to run from it. The Holy Spirit uses these very kinds of moments. Uh, to work in our lives so appropriately let's enjoy what God is doing in our midst this morning can we as together we find the old testament book of Job and put a finger in chapter 42 would you I mean that most literally because I will take you to another scripture in a moment first but I'll return to Job 42 so put a finger there and just hold on for a surprise about where we'll go first, because I do want to answer the question, why? In fact, I want to answer it specifically in a moment as to why I think this occurred in Job's life. Before we get there, can we review from a more general perspective uh, what we are seeing in the book of Job and perhaps a larger, maybe overarching answer to the question of why in general? Here's the graphic we've been using to kind of walk us through the book of Job. You recall in chapters 1 through 3, we do get a really vivid picture into the earthly anguish of Job. And of course, his why questions that followed that, they're in chapter 3. Chapters 4 through about 37 are the various human approaches to answering his questions of chapter 3. They include his first three friends. They gave what I term a um, humanly judicial approach, which I believe was distorted, not in its truthfulness, necessarily, but in its timing. Um, Elihu approaches next, the youngest of the three, he gives what I have termed the sovereign excuse me, the um, mentally theological approach, and it's uh, more or less detached, it's incomplete. These are the main two approaches discussed in the largest bulk of the book. They're trying to answer Job's questions, but neither really suffice. They all fall short. But fortunately, God speaks. Notice he does not give an approach. He gives the answer. Amen, church. And he reveals himself sovereignly and personally to Job. This is why I think what he lays out for us as the overarching general answer to the why question is a sovereign, personal answer. He is universally authoritative, but he is uh, personally um, you know, intimate and attentive. He combines these beautifully. Both his transcendence and his eminence are seen in this answer. And of course, his answer then causes Job to respond in verse, I believe it's five and six of chapter 42 that my ears had heard about you. I knew of reports about you, this kind of remote cognitive understanding, but he says, my eyes have now seen you. So Job understood more deeply, knew more deeply who God was, not just what God did. And we surmise from this, and I think showed quite biblically that this is the overarching reason for suffering, that we would know God more deeply that we would see his purposes and his character and know that he is up to our spiritual formation first even before he's trying to enter into our physical fixes we're still left with this lingering question that I've enjoyed pondering and that is that's helpful Todd that seems to be a accurate, honest understanding of the book. But I'm still curious. Why did Job go through what he went through? Like, does the book tell us? Like, it's a lot for one individual. It seemed like a very intense story. It's gripping. No one wants to be Job, but we love reading about Job. Why did Job go through what he went through? Like, does this principle hold true? Did he know God more deeply and the answer to that is yes and I think we're given a very beautiful commentary on how he knew God more deeply not in the book of Job but in another book of the Bible that mentions Job's name so look at James 5 11, just as a brief way to show you what I think is the specific answer to how Job knew God More deeply, I'll show it to you in our lab. Can I do that? We can all look at it together. I think this is a fabulous commentary on the life of Job. Notice what James does here. He starts in a very general way with the prophets. And I won't go into detail about verse 10. Just know that he seems to start out in a large way with those who suffer. They're spiritually blindsided by things they can't explain or figure out, have no answer for. He narrows in and just simply says, you know, Job is one of those kinds of people. And we count them as blessed when they endure. And then he says in verse 11, you have heard of Job's endurance. I think it's pretty interesting, too, that James assumes that the readers had heard of this. It proves a strong oral tradition in the early New Testament church of the Old Testament. This is hundreds of years. Uh, since it was uh, I mean probably thousands before it happened but I mean just hundreds of years are passing and yet he's assuming you readers know you've heard of Job so it's this consistent oral tradition of passing down the truth and then he says this here's what you've heard about Job's endurance that the outcome was one the Lord brought about I want you to circle the word outcome as well So Job endured something and was able to experience the outcome that the Lord brought about. So James is crediting, so to speak, God's work in Job's life. But notice how he focuses on the end result. Very little in this verse is talking about chapters 1 through 41 and a half. Okay? Most of this commentary is about the end, the part we're looking at today. Job 42, 7 to 17 the outcome, and what does he say in almost an inserted phrase about the outcome? It's almost like he interrupts himself. He says, you've heard of Job, his endurance, and the outcome the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Like He just kind of blurts out this statement about God's character when talking about the outcome of Job's situation. Here's what I think James is doing. James is saying, yes, the outcome is brought about by God. And it's possible because God is compassionate and merciful. But I think the, and I would even say the explicit understanding of this is this is what Job began to realize. Job knew the outcome of all the things I didn't understand. The fact that I was able to endure everything about this that seems impossible It's actually God's mercy and compassion on display to get me to this point. I would say to you and contend with you that what Job knew more deeply about God when all was said and done were these two things specifically, that God is compassionate and merciful. It's a beautiful commentary. In fact, I'm so confident, maybe I should say personally confident, that this is really what's happening in these verses. It's James giving us insight into what Job learned about God more deeply, that I think it actually affected how Job lived the rest of his life. And this is what I think Job 42, 7 to 17 show us. So with this as kind of a backdrop, let's shine the light now on the center stage text of Job 42, 7 to 17. Would you flip back there And notice how this book ends because two things are going to be clearly seen. First of all, the fact that Job knew all about God's compassion and mercy. It's going to help him to relate tricephorically. We'll we'll talk about that in a moment. And it's going to help him remain faithful. These are the two main things discussed as the book closes. And I believe they're both empowered by the fact that Job knew God more deeply, specifically, that he was compassionate and merciful. Can I lay it out for you? Job 42, your eyes are there. Have your pen ready, your journal is open. Look what it says in verse 7, first of all. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you've not spoken the truth about me. Underline this next phrase, as my servant Job has. What did Job maintain? For all of these chapters, whatever time they included that he was innocent, blameless, that he wasn't accusing God, here God gives Job what he was asking for, his vindication. Job has not spoken untruthfully about me. Job has not sinned. And there were some honest conversations. There were moments Job was laid low in the dust that he realized he doesn't have a full understanding of what's happening. But none of that included sin. I love that. But apparently the first three friends did. (laughs) In fact, this verse seems to say to us that even in their distorted timing, uh, they were were wrong about some things they said. They just didn't assess things accurately. And so in response to that, they're to take seven bulls, verse 8 says, and seven rams, go to Job. He's called servant here multiple times. Interesting, isn't it? And God says to take uh, this offering and to make a burnt offering for yourselves the burnt offering by the way in the levitical system which we learned this uh in the third book of the old testament is really the offering that began the day for the old testament people of god it was more of a general offering or a general sacrifice to kind of act as a covering um, it wasn't necessarily aimed at a specific sin, which is what the sin offering was for this is more of that general kind of confession um, it's how you began your day and so He's referencing here, hey, go, and just in light of what you've done generally, let's make confession, let's make this right. And so after they would offer that offering, that burnt offering, it says, then my servant Job will pray for you. Now, can we just pause for a moment and say, that's an amazing request. That's the last thing I would have wanted to do if I had friends like Job. Like, I would have wanted to do some other things, and I might have prayed for them with requests they wouldn't want to hear. (laughs) But what I want to pray for them, the sense of the text is pray for them that they would also uh, experience, you know, God. Like, in a specific way, notice what the rest of the verse says I will surely accept his prayer, speaking of Job's, and I will not deal with you as your folly deserves. I'll give you two words for that I'll give you mercy and I'll show you compassion. God is great. Amen, church? This is not what humans do. This is what God does. And God is asking Job to be the one to pray for his friends that they would receive the mercy and compassion of God. Verse 9, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the... Namathite went and did as the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. We could talk a lot about some theological implications of this text. I won't do that this morning. I just want to zero in on one thing. The incredible humility and courage that Job exhibited by praying that his friends would experience the mercy and compassion of God, the same friends who treated him scornfully, and spoke wrongfully about him and were in this text judged for that. By the way, Elihu was never judged for his words. And incidentally, Job's wife, according to the record, was never judged either. Sometimes they're pretty hard on her. But if you take the story as a whole, only three people were said to really messed up in regards to what they said and that is Job's first three friends. And it's these three friends That God says to Job, pray for them that they know my grace, mercy, and compassion. My thought is this. There's only one way Job could have done that. There's only one way Job could have prayed for his friends to know the mercy and compassion of God. It's because he knew God more deeply in those two specific ways. It's because he knew what James says to us that the outcome was one brought about by a God who is merciful and compassionate. I think Job understood, I'm only at this point in this entire quote-unquote mess because God has mercifully and compassionately brought me to it. So that's how and why he can pray for his friends in that fashion. It's an amazing Point in the narrative, isn't it? And it brings to mind an intriguing principle of life that we know is true: that that we often can't extend to others better what we have received ourselves. True, like it's the principle of of walking in someone's shoes. You can do that in a better fashion when you've actually put on their shoes. Like you've experienced what they're going through, you can relate to them better. And this is what I see happening here. Job is able to relate triceprically because he knows God more deeply, specifically that he's compassionate and merciful. Now, I hope you're asking this question right now, like what in the world is triceprically? It's not even a word, you're right. It's a word for today. Uh, We've used it before, but it's, What we want to sometimes do is we want to put reciprocal in there. And so we want to say, hey, I know what you're going through, so because you've acted this way to me, I'll act that way to you. That's a reciprocal relationship, but that's not what the text describes. The text doesn't say Job treated his friends scornfully and accused them wrongly because they did that to him. The text does not say that. The text says that God did something in Job and then Job had to pray that his friends would experience what God did for him. That's the sense of the text. I'm bringing in James as well. That's why I say to you, what's happening here is a triangular relationship. God showed mercy and compassion to Job. And then says, now Job, I need you to pray this way for your friends. So I'll experience it too. He related tricepically he said god you've been and done something to and for me and now i'll extend that to those who need it as well that's a beautiful picture isn't it relating tricepically that only occurs as god works in us and then we extend that to others now we know this is true about life this is how it works We always relate better to others when we've been in their shoes. It's not a hard thing to grasp. I experienced this quite humorously just last week, in fact. Um, I hear a lot of folks sometimes, you know, talk about what it's like when you get to a certain age and you get discounts at different coffee shops or restaurants, you know. I was in the drive-thru line at Culver's. I think it was last... um, Maybe a week ago Thursday, I'm not sure exactly, but I always get a large concrete Snickers and pecan mixer. I'll eat about nine-tenths. Julie eats about one-tenth. That's sometimes our weekly date. We sometimes just sit in the truck and talk. So Julie's been gone for about a month. She got back last week, hallelujah. Uh, She was helping one of our daughters who lives in Columbus, Ohio, and there's just things there. So she was helping there, and it turned into like a month long. So we were desperately missing each other and so i think just the week before she got home i i went my culvers got in the drive-through got my usual large snickers and pecan concrete mixer i pulled to the window and the guy leans in and says hey here's your mixer and i, I gave you the senior discount <laughs> <laughs> i'm like what do i say to that like i, I wanted to ask did you didn't see me when I ordered, does my voice sound that old or? Like, did you just gonna add it on the spot or have I ordered so much that you know what I look like? I'm, I've got my own set of why questions, right? But I can relate now to my friends who say, that first time you get this in your discount, it's a weird feeling. Like, I can relate to that now, right? Because I've walked in those shoes. On a more positive, Serious note, I've experienced this in our church in a beautiful way. God is so gracious to us, isn't He? He loves us so much. Um, You know, often pastors will tell you that sometimes the worst members in their church are former pastors. This is not a funny moment, it's generally true. They're the first ones who will say, Well, that's not the way I did it. They have hard critiques on your sermons. Um, they're always second-guessing, and they're just sometimes, former retired pastors are very hard to pastor. But for some reason, that's not been the case here. We have a number of former pastors in our church, in fact. Some are just no longer pastoring, some are actually retired, and I I can't think of a single one that's treated me um, in a way that's been like the member they never wanted to, you know, meet. And I think that sometimes that that's what happens is pastors turn into the member they want to get back at, right? And so they do that to the next pastor, so to speak. Uh, it's been beautiful to interact with. There's a there's a couple in our church now, one of them, Steve. He's just, just a gracious pastor, so supportive and encouraging. Ed Gregory was an elder for years here. and I, I looked at him kind of like my pastor, and he just was always like just helpful and insightful and, and come alongside you have other folks here perry comes in at times for uh, months at a time he lives out of state but there's other ones in our church um keith was a former pastor here and think about the situation just his consistent encouragement uh here, here's what i love about that what they do is this they know the shoes that a pastor walks in so instead of being like the member they uh never liked in their former church They're actually going to be the member that they know every pastor wants. They're just going to be that person that's easy to pastor, easy to shepherd because they've walked in those shoes. Does that make sense? Like we just know this intuitively. It's not hard to figure out that when you've been in the shoes of someone, you can relate to them better. And how much more does that happen when it's God showing us who he is and then asking us, To extend that to others. It's exponentially more powerful. So I want to say to you. Who have been through suffering. Or who are suffering. One of the reasons. That God has allowed this. Ordained this. Permitted this. Is so that you can extend to others. More about who he is. Because he has shown it to you. In your suffering. So. A quick question for you. Will you be a conduit of God's character to someone who needs it? Second Corinthians chapter one reminds us this is how God extends his comfort. It says that that the God of all comfort, he comforts us with the same comfort that we then comfort others. Do you see the same triciprocal relationship occurring God does something and we extend that to others a triangular relationship is going on and it involves God's comfort in that case so, so in your suffering what have you learned about God that you can then extend to others to help them how can you pray for others in ways that's based on what you now know in a deeper fashion about God Maybe you're wondering, well, Todd, how do I know specifically what I'm learning about God in my suffering in these moments of trials, in these times that are very difficult? You say that the overall aim is to know God more deeply and we can specifically understand God's character in specific ways. How do I know that? Here's what I would say to you. And this is more of a Todd's tip moment. But I would think I could, I could probably make a pretty strong case for this biblically based on what Job's, uh, Job says here. Here's what I would say to you. If you want to connect your suffering and God's attributes in such a way that you can then extend that aspect of his character to others, be a conduit for that, if you want to connect your suffering and God's attributes, ask yourself this question. In the middle of your suffering, what is God asking you to do? I would remind you, this is what God asked Job. He said, I want you to pray for your friends. And it may be that at that very moment, Job realized, I can do that because I know how merciful and compassionate you've been to me. I can do that to them. So I would just encourage you, ask yourself in the middle of your suffering, what is God asking you to do? And more than likely the answer to that question will lean into an aspect of God's character that you'll be able to then say, oh, I see what you want me to do. It's because you are this or you are that that you want me to do this or that. Connect those two and you'll then know more specifically how you are knowing God more deeply. There's a lot there. Just know that in these first three verses of this last section, I do think Job is divinely empowered to relate triceprically. He's a conduit of God's character to those who need to know God better as well. The last thing I see in this text, which again, I think is connected to James five eleven, that Job was able to understand and do and because of God's compassion and mercy is that he was able to remain faithful. Notice the last portion of Job 42, we'll read this together. It's a delightful ending. We all love these kind of endings, don't we? Here's how the book ends. Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends and the Lord uh, then restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. That's a beautiful verse, isn't it? God restores what Job once had. Apart from his children, he did double everything. He had 10 kids to begin. He now has 10 kids at the end. So he has 20 total in that sense. But as far as his possessions go, it says here in verse 12, of course, that uh, the Lord blessed the last part of his life more than the first. So in addition to the fact that he had 10 more kids, he had friends, verse 11 says, that came and gave him uh, a piece of silver and a gold earring so they were generous with him. They helped comfort him. It says that he um, had now 14,000 sheep and goats as opposed to 7,000, chapter 1 says, He has 6,000 camels as opposed to 3,000. He has 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys as opposed to 500 of each. Chapter 1 verifies all of this. So you could technically say verse 12 says the Lord blessed the last part of Job's life double than the first. As far as his children goes, in this second set of 10, he had these three daughters. Their names were Jemima, Keziah, and Karin Hapuk. And they were as beautiful, um, no one had other daughters as more beautiful than Job's daughters. It says that their father granted them an inheritance with their brothers, which is an amazing anti-cultural move here. I'm really proud of Job, aren't you? Like typically it went to the oldest male. Here it goes to the brothers and the sisters. Job just saying like, hey, God has restored us, everybody wins. (laughs) And then what I think is a very insightful verse, but often we just kind of let it fade off because we think it's just the the you know like the the running credits at the end we will just leave the theater early and don't worry about those listen to this verse job lived 140 years after this and saw his children and their children to the fourth generation then job died old and full of days if you want a verse in the bible that defines faithfulness that's it now if Job's age was doubled just like his possessions that means Job was a, probably 70 when he went through his trials. So 140 years of being faithful to God and seeing his children and their children. What a what a beautiful ending, right? He was faithful He was as faithful in the end as he was in the beginning. And I think that's an insight into answering the question that's nagging all of us at this point. Because there's not a single person in this room who doesn't want this part of Job. Nobody wants chapters 41 through one. Nobody wants those, right? Like, Job, you can have those, but can I have 7 through 17? Especially 10 through 17. Can I get the double portion can I get the longer life, full of age? I do think it's a question that needs answered. Like, Todd, is this promised to everybody? Like, if I'm going through suffering, can you guarantee this to me? It's a legitimate question. And we don't want to overlook the text, we don't want to just ignore it. Let's answer it. I think one of the best words to use in answering this is that this is a specific restoration just as the book is a specific story so the principle is that god restores he transforms he reveals himself to us in our suffering we know him more deeply i maintain we can know him more deeply in specific ways and he wants us to extend that and as we trust him in our suffering then we remain faithful through our life and God restores as he sees fit. This is one example of his restoration. And you may balk at that. You may say, Todd, that's almost like an easy out. Let me remind you of something. For those who say they want the end of the story, I think they should be willing to say they'll take the beginning of the story as well. You say, what's the beginning, Todd? I'd remind you the beginning of the story begins with the divine counsel, the sons of God before Yahweh. And God pinpoints Job and says, have you noticed how faithful he is? And the accuser takes advantage of that moment and says, I bet I could get him to be unfaithful. That's the point of this first part of chapter one. Let me take his stuff, let me bombard his health and and. To Yahweh, the accuser says, he'll deny you. He'll buckle. So God allows the accuser to go after Job's spiritual faithfulness. The entire time Job does not buckle, at the end, God gives Job what he had at the beginning, but more because he trusts him. God never doubted for a moment Job would maintain his integrity. Job was vindicated, and can I say to you, God was as well. The accuser was not able to accomplish what he set out to do. He did not cause Job to deny God, to turn his back on God, and so it's, it's very sensible and right to realize, oh, since Job was the specific one in the crosshairs of the accuser, and that's how everything was taken, God is now simply saying, Job, I trusted you with this at the beginning, You've trusted me all the way through all of this suffering. Guess what? I'll trust you with it again. I have no doubt you'll maintain your integrity and faithfulness in the end, just as you did at the beginning. So Job, here it is. I think that's the simplest and most specific way to see Job. And if you were to say to me, well, Todd, what if I am one in the beginning? What if I am in the crosshairs of the accuser? I might be willing to negotiate with you, to argue with you, to contend with you, that perhaps you then could lay claim to God's restoration in this fashion. I don't know. The point is this. If you're wanting this type of restoration, you have to also be willing then to accept the previous type of accusation. Do you really want to be in the crosshairs of the accuser? Have you ever wondered if that happens today? Does the accuser today approach Yahweh? And does Yahweh say, hey accuser, have you seen Alex? Alex follows me faithfully. And would the accuser say, he wouldn't if you let me at him. I could take Alex out. Like, do you think that still happens? We can disagree on that, I wonder. But is that not earth shatteringly sobering? That in the courts of the divine council, God is verbalizing his confidence in some of his children and the accuser is doing his best to prove him wrong. Is that happening today? That's a a question I ask myself a lot. And then I ask myself, "Do, do I want God to mention my name out loud? I don't know, I don't know. Is that okay to confess? If that's what you would do and take, and that's what you are, then maybe you can lay claim to Job 42 but you can't have one without the other. That's my point. So before you get all health and wealth on us, like, hey, give me the last verses. Take the chapter one, two. That's all I'm saying to you. I think understanding that helps us kind of assimilate this text into our frame of reference. That God does restore in his way, in his time specifically. But in this case, Chapter 42 comes after chapter 1. And I think it's a package deal. Regardless, here's what we see. Is Job remaining faithful? Watch this. Through the good and the bad. Through when God gave and through when God took away. So God knew Job's faithfulness was not contingent upon or hinged to something he gave him or didn't give him. Job was faithful to God, and I would maintain to you in these last 140 years in a more decisive and better way because he knew God. The relationship is why Job was in. Period, and it only increased and intensified. And Job remained faithful another 140 years, knowing God more deeply than he ever known him before. Well, let's take these two ingredients can we let's put them in the oven let's bake them up put James 5 in there let's have all this kind of cooking together we take it out of the oven what do we have what's the singular take-home truth we can kind of gather from these last few verses of Job 42 bringing in this commentary from James here's what I would say to you and I'll say it to you in the past tense Job was empowered to follow God more fully, and I would contend with you, and I'd maintain that Job did follow God more fully after the suffering because he knew God to be a merciful, compassionate God to a greater degree than he did before. So I think his following was more intense, more full. And so Job was empowered to follow God more fully because he knew God more deeply we see it illustrated in two ways in the last chapter. How he prayed for his friends, how he related triceprically, and how he remained faithful 140 years after the suffering. Now, you could replace the word follow with experience. I'm good with that. Job was empowered to experience God more fully because he knew God more deeply. In regards to how God restored him and all those uh, elements in those last few verses. You could put the word obey in there. Job was empowered to obey God more fully. I think any of those work. Follow, obey, experience. The point is this. Something happened in Job's external life because of what God did in Job's internal soul. He knew God more deeply. Character, aspects, attributes Of Yahweh that affected how he lived. This wasn't brought about without the suffering. And so suffering is the mechanism by which we know God in a deeper fashion and that's the fuel for following God in a fuller fashion, for obeying God in a fuller fashion, for experiencing God in a fuller fashion. Again, I think it's a package deal. And many people want to follow more fully. At least they say they do. They want to obey more fully. They want to experience God more fully. But they want to say, can I just not have the suffering? Or can I not have the the knowing God more deeply part? I I just want to do. I just want to experience. But this goes together, church. And knowing God more deeply is the result of walking through the deep waters of suffering. But when you know God more deeply, you will follow him more fully. This again is one of those intuitive things that we know. That the more we understand someone, the more we know them, the better we get along with them externally. you're thinking right now, probably, of just a marriage, how this works in marriage with your spouse. The more you get to know them, communicate with them, talk with them, learn their ins and outs, and this takes decades. Sorry, newlyweds, I think it's a beautiful process, but it takes a long time. The better you are then to be able to act and treat your spouse this is why peter would say to husbands live with your wives according to knowledge he uses the word live meaning conduct but he says that's based on something how well you know her he's stating the same thing that our involvement externally can only be as effective and helpful as our knowledge internally just this past week Julie got back from columbus and we had a Christmas lights conversation. We always like Christmas lights. We grew up differently about those and there's different things about that, but even as well as we know each other after 34 years, we found ourselves at, in the disagreement about Christmas lights for 2023, but here's what's beautiful. In that conversation, 20 years ago, it probably would have been an argument. We're fighting for our way because we know each other really well and love each other really deeply, and I know where her trigger points are she knows my life. we just have a an innate and a lot of you this way you have an innate sense of like i, I don't want to go there that wouldn't be helpful i'm not going to say that at the end of the day we just were trying to fight for the other uh, each other's uh each other's way like hey let's just do it like you said and she'd say no listen we kind of came to a good middle of the road on christmas lights i know it's a small thing my point is this though that conversation after 34 years went a lot better because we had a lot more knowledge about each other on this side. Does that make sense? You're, you're tracking, right? And the same thing is true spiritually. You'll be able to obey and experience and follow God much more robustly and fully as you get to know God more deeply. But this is where the equation often breaks. Of race the avenue to knowing God more deeply is usually suffering. And if you're there right now, ask God to reveal himself through his word and by his spirit to you so that you know him more deeply and specifically attributes about who he is so that you can then follow him more fully as you exit your suffering. Assuming that some do. I'll admit to you, Hebrews 11 seems to say that there are those who don't exit their physical suffering. But they follow God fully all the way through it. So a lot of words we said today, in some ways it's simpler, in other ways it's meatier than the previous weeks. I think my goal today has been to try to narrow all of this down, 42 chapters, to this simple present tense truth. We've seen what happened to Job, kind of how it formed him and empowered him, but let's just put it in the present tense, that for us, we too are empowered to follow God more fully as we know God more deeply. So don't resist your suffering. Don't put up a wall against the moments that you you feel spiritually blindsided by hard times know that God is working through them to reveal himself more deeply to you. And as he does, then be willing to extend that to others and obey him, follow him more fully as you know him more deeply. Let me answer one last question as I land the plane and close, not only this week, but this series. Todd, if, if I'm into that, if I'm like, okay, I want to know God more deeply, what's one thing I could do to begin that process? Well, let me give you an answer from the book of Job. Nothing like sticking with the text, right? Here's the answer from Job. It's all the way back in chapter one. Daily personal worship. I think it's intriguing that the Bible records for us that Job every day would offer sacrifices for his kids, for himself. In case something went awry in all our relationships and all of our partying, talks about the banquets that hold, and all of this going on, in case something went awry, we're going to make sure that every day we're seeking God. We're a worshiper of God. We're, we're confessing. We're conversing. Every day Job did this. So I take this from that. If you want to experience a life of remaining faithful and learning what God is doing in your life in difficult times through suffering, if you, if you want to see God do in your life what he did in Job's life, know him more deeply so that you can follow him more fully, make sure every day you have time for personal worship. We've well, used other words for that like quiet time Daily devotions. So you can put your synonym in there, okay? What you can't do is say, I want to know God more deeply, but I'll never spend time with Him. Spend time with your Creator every day. The Holy Word, the Holy Spirit. Some some moments of meditation and privacy, worshiping the Lord, confessing sin receiving forgiveness and all that's just part of this moment in which every day we come to our creator and say, Lord, you own me, you own my life, I worship you. That's how we get to know God more deeply. That's the first step. It empowers us to embrace suffering, to pursue opportunities. And as we know God more deeply, we will then follow him more fully if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Obedience always flows from relationship. Job is proof of that. I'm calling us as a church to live in that as well, to know God more deeply, relationship so that we follow him more fully, obedience.